Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning into episode number seven of the Mortal Movement Podcast. Today's episode is a bit heavy on the science side, but I promise it's going somewhere and it's going to give us some clarity on muscles and all the roles muscles play. We all know that muscles move us, but how often do we really consider all the muscles involved in a movement? That's what I'm going to focus on today. So I'm going to look at the roles that muscles play, and I'm going to look at the interaction of muscle length and muscle tension and how that can either set us up for efficient movement or can start us down the road to major imbalances and poor results. Should be a fun show. Stick around. Welcome to the More to Movement podcast, where we break down the science behind movement and provide you with tangible takeaways so you can take charge of your health and fitness and achieve lasting results. If you're ready to optimize your efforts, move with purpose, and invest in your health and performance with confidence and vigor, you've come to the right place. Here's your host, Pete Rowletter. Hey, welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining me today's episode. Today, I'm jumping back into the principles of movement series that I've been talking about over the last few episodes. And in all honesty, I've been really tempted to jump onto my next segment because I'm really excited to get there and start getting into some of the real world application stuff and start fixing your movements and talking about different ways to, to correct pattern discrepancies. But I know that I just wouldn't be doing right by you if I didn't take the time to set the foundation. It's so vital for success. It really is. And I can't tell you how many people and professionals that I've come across and worked with that struggle to get the results they want or struggle with improvements because they just don't understand the foundation. And I know it can be a bit tedious, but I've got two more episodes of this foundational content that I want to cover before we move on. And I hope you're in it with me. So without further ado, let's get on to today's topic. Today, we're talking about the roles muscles play. And I'm going beyond just the typical roles we think of. So when you think of an exercise, you probably think of the main muscle working. And of course, that's doing a lot of work. But all the muscles associated with that joint are contributing in some way. And far too often, people don't consider what those muscles are doing and how they're impacting your movement and, of course, your results. So to start out with this, I want to give you a visual. I want you to think of a quarterback on a football team. And imagine watching a game. What are you focused on? Most people will focus on the quarterback because he's in the limelight. He has the ball most of the time and everyone's waiting to see what he'll do with it. Most of us watching aren't going to focus on the offensive line or the running backs or the wide receivers unless they receive the ball or unless they're a part of some epic play. Like I said, most eyes are on the quarterback. Now, what happens if during that game, the offensive line doesn't do its job? You guessed it. The quarterback gets smashed and we're all wondering what happened. How'd that happen? If you know the game or you were paying attention, you may have seen it coming. And like the analogy that I just used, when it comes to muscles and movement, most of us do the same thing. We look at the prime mover, the main muscle, but we don't look at all the other muscles contributing. And although it's understandable to focus on the main muscle, if we neglect all the other contributing muscles, we may be selling ourselves short on the results that we're seeking. 
where this is going is a pretty typical question that I ask, and that is, what happens if a muscle isn't doing their part? Yeah, you guessed it. Imbalance and overcompensation. And some of you right now are saying, big deal, Pete, so I don't develop the muscles as well as I could. What's the big deal? Well, for starters, I've never met anybody who doesn't want to get something from their effort, right? I mean, you're putting this effort into exercise and train. You want the best possible results, right? So there's that to consider. But the bigger picture is what overcompensation can lead to. And that's the pain, the discomfort, and even possibly injury because of the poor movement patterns. When there's overcompensation, muscles are robbing energy from other muscles. That reinforces bad patterns. Those bad patterns become habits, and those habits will lead to discomfort, to pain, to injuries. So these are things we should address or at least consider. So we're going to start out with an understanding of what roles muscles play during a movement. And again, I'm going to start with a visual to help drive the point home. I want you to envision a stage production. Get a visual of the stage, the cast, and all the lighting, because that's really important for this visual. During some acts, all the stage lights are on, and you can see that everyone is contributing to the scene. In other acts, sometimes a spotlight is on one actor, with the rest of the cast acting in the background. And though the focus is on that one actor during that scene, the scene wouldn't work unless the rest of the cast played their parts in the background. Very similarly, at different times or for different movements, muscles take on different roles, just like the ones I mentioned. So let's go with this visual of the stage production and let's focus on that actor with the spotlight. When a muscle is tasked to be the leader or in the spotlight, it takes on the role of something called agonist, which means that it acts as the prime mover for that action. Most can recognize this role because it's the one we all focus on during a movement. Let me give you the visual of a biceps curl. So as we bring the weight up towards our shoulders, we flex at the elbow, the bicep brachii is engaging. You feel it shortening, tightening up. That's the prime mover for that action. During that exact movement, we have a villain, right? The one that opposes the primary actor. And that muscle is called the antagonist, and it actually works to oppose the prime mover, but it doesn't oppose it in a negative way. What it actually does is helps refine and control the movement. Going back to that visual of the biceps curl, the triceps brachii are going to be the antagonist during a biceps curl because they are working opposite of the elbow flexor, the bicep brachii. Within that movement, some muscles take on the role of assistant, and they help the prime mover during that main movement pattern. And these guys are called synergists. And if you go back to the stage production analogy, these are going to be the sidekicks to the main actor, right? They're important to the scene. They contribute significantly, but they're not the main role. If we think of that bicep exercise that I just discussed, we know that there are a couple elbow flexors that assist the bicep brachii. That's going to be your brachialis and your brachioradialis. Those are going to be synergistic to the bicep curl that we talked about. Finally, some muscles stick to the support side of things. And these are your 
extras or your background actors that really don't have a major role but contribute significantly to the scene. They help support the scene. The scene wouldn't be made without their presence. And that's exactly what the stabilizers do. They support the body while the other muscles are performing their functions. Further, they actually help protect the joints as well as maintain integrity of the movement. So if we go back to visual of the bicep curl, we need to think of some muscles that are help maintain integrity of the joint. And we can think of the rotator cuff muscles at the shoulder, for example. They're maintaining a good fixed position of the humerus during elbow flexion. So they work as stabilizers during that exercise. Now I have a visual, a graphic I created uh, of these terms on the show notes page at moretomovement.com forward slash episode seven. So check that out if you need a little more to help drive this concept home for you. Now I gave you one example, but keep in mind that if the movement changes, so do the roles of those muscles. Let me give you an example. If I raise my arm up in front of me, the front of my shoulder, which is the anterior deltoid becomes the prime mover. And while the back of my shoulder, the posterior deltoid will be the antagonist. Now, if I reverse that movement and I bring my arm down and behind me, the muscles switch roles. So hopefully those visuals and this discussion has made it clear that all muscles work together to create movement and they all have a very important role. This codependence is called a forced coupled relationship, meaning that all muscles play a role and they all contribute to force production and help transfer force to contribute to a good effective movement. When we really think about it, no movement is really ever isolated. So if a muscle doesn't play its role, it affects the whole system. And most times when there's movement issues, what we see are the background actors deciding to do more than just carry out their supporting role. Instead, they, they want to step into the limelight and that's called synergistic dominance. And it's a far too common occurrence. I see it way too often. Let me give you an example. The bench press exercise, most of you know, engages the pectoralis major, the chest muscles, as well as the back of the arm, the triceps brachii as prime movers with the anterior deltoid contributing as a synergist. However, with all the movement that I watch, I tend to see patterns where the anterior deltoid is contributing way more than it should during a bench press exercise. And that anterior deltoid actually starts to take the place as the prime mover, which will take away the primary duties of the pec. Why is this important? Well, at surface level, if you're trying to develop the pectoralis major muscle, you're not doing a great job because it's not engaging like it should. Further, there's some bigger ramifications, such as suboptimal force transfer and performance. So if you're trying to get stronger with that movement pattern, you're not getting the most out of that movement. Or of course you can consider the bigger scale. And that's when we have overdevelopment of the anterior deltoid and that overdevelopment can lead to an imbalance and that imbalance could cause postural issues, for example, and those shoulders begin to roll forward. And now we start to have a chronic problem where we don't have good postural alignment and we have overdevelopment of tissue. That's going to lead to a whole host of pains, discomforts, and even syndromes, movement syndromes because of the alignment and the patterns of this muscle and of the posture. 
taking a step beyond that and seeing how vital this synergistic relationship is, we can start to look at the relationship of force and how it's affected. As you know, tension has to be present within the muscle to create a movement. So to have an understanding of the relationship of force, we need to consider some types of forces. And so I'm going to talk briefly about active and passive force, or also known as active and passive tension. Active tension is just that. It's force produced when the muscle fibers are actively shortening or actively contracting. And if you recall, that requires some metabolic chemical processes to kick in for the muscle to actually contract. I'm going to go nerd mode for just a moment, but when muscles contract, we actually are looking at the myofilaments, which are the actin and myosin proteins. They form a cross bridge within the muscle cell and they generate a forceful pull towards the center of that cell or the sarcomere. And that's what shortens the muscle fiber. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about an active contraction. Passive tension is when those myofilaments that I just talked about are lengthened and pulled apart. The elastic component of the sarcomere produces the tensile force when lengthened. And it does so without those chemical metabolic processes that I talked about. That's why it's considered passive. So why is this important? Why did I take some time to talk about that? Movement has both active and passive tension components, and they add up to contribute to the total tension within muscle. And within movement, there are optimal levels of tension. And to maximize our movement efforts, understanding how the types of forces produced and how the length of tissue affects tension levels is hugely beneficial for our outcomes. Let me give you another visual. Think of jumping. If you were to stand straight up and try to jump, meaning you don't bend your knees, nothing like that. You just stand straight up and then try to jump. Do you get very far off the ground? Of course not. Now picture yourself squatting down as low to the ground as possible. So you only have a few inches of clearance between you and the ground. Now jump. Again, not real optimal. Don't get very high off the ground. Neither option is optimal for maximizing that jump effort. For you to jump as high as possible, what works best then? For most, it's going to be a quick mini squat that takes advantage of both contractile and elastic properties. And what that really means is that you're just taking advantage of an optimal link tension relationship. I told you this episode was a little heavy on the science side, so I'm going nerd mode one more time. Muscles have a specific length at rest. So at rest, muscle tissue is at 100% of its resting length, right? Now, if that muscle is slightly stretched beyond resting, so maybe up to about 130%, it has great potential for force and tension. And that's going to be due mostly to the elastic and contractile properties of the tissue. Think of a rubber band. If I pull a rubber band beyond resting, I've got a lot of potential, right? Got a potential snap. I have a lot of potential force. This is where that passive link tension relationship really shines. However, if it's stretched beyond that point, tension will decrease significantly. And again, think of that rubber band. If I stretch it too far, it starts to tear. We're going to lose force potential. Now, as a muscle leaves that rested state and starts to contract or shorten, it will actually maintain proper tension 
up until about 70% of its resting length. And again, that's due to that increasing overlap of those actin, myosin filaments that I talked about earlier. So we have good force production, but up to a point. It actually will hit a peak and then plateau when all those available binding sites for the actin and myosin are occupied. So tension will actually peak, plateau, and then diminish pretty quickly. And that's the active link tension relationship in action. This brings us full circle, and hopefully now you can see how important this concept is. All muscles have optimal link tension relationships, meaning there's a range within movement when we get the most out of our tension within the tissue. If we understand the roles muscles play and how they contribute to movement through active and passive force, we can evaluate how effective and efficient or inefficient the link tension relationships are for specific movements. And this can influence how we're improving or correcting movement, but also how we implement movement or exercise strategies for development. This can be a huge, huge game changer for you. Let's go back to that example of the jump. If I try to jump without bending my legs at all, I have no contribution through active tension. No muscles are really contracting. And so I'm missing out on the optimal tension to help me jump. On the other side, if I squat down too deep, I've gone beyond that optimal range and I've elongated the muscle so much that I'm missing out on optimal elastic properties through that, through that passive tension to contribute to the jump. We want to find that sweet spot somewhere in the middle where we are taking advantage of the optimal tension to contribute to that jump. And this is where it gets fun because everyone's optimal range will be slightly different based on a lot of mitigating factors such as muscle development or length of tissue. So like limb lengths, how tall or short they may be. That's why it's so vital to understand what you're looking for. Optimal link tension relationships allow for coordinated and controlled movement. So movement is smooth and controlled when we have an optimal link tension relationship. However, if issues with the link tension relationships arise for any particular muscle due to injury or imbalances, you'll be able to observe those compensations. And that's where we implement strategies to improve or correct the problem. Let's look at some general characteristics here. So building muscle, that's a lot of people's goals. If you just lift weights, is that enough? No, you know it won't cut it if you're aiming for some optimal development. So I encourage you, take it a step further and start thinking of some of the things that we talked about. So remember the elastic properties that we discussed of elongated end range of motion tissue and how it contributes significantly to increase tension so instead of focusing just on the active tension or that active shortening contraction, consider working or loading that lengthening phase of tissue and take the movement through a full range of motion and reach fatigue and see how that affects your muscular development. Strength gains are another primary goal for a lot of people. So how about those? How could we use today's concepts to improve our strength? Well, maybe consider taking some time to throw in some tempo training sessions that focus on developing that elastic response during an eccentric contraction to help with the transition to a really powerful and forceful concentric phase. These are just a few examples, but hopefully you're getting the picture.
So at this point, let's talk about those tangible takeaways for today so that you can optimize roles of muscles and take advantage of length tension relationships. How can we start implementing this stuff? Takeaway number one, let's improve force coupled relationships by adding stabilizing exercises. Guys, the precursor to any movement is stability. Those stabilizers, even though they're in the background, play a vital role. If those stabilizing muscles are weak, then the movement, the force potential, and all the other muscles contributing to the movement will be suboptimal. They'll be weak as well. So try to include movements that challenge and strengthen stability. Some of my favorites are unilateral work. So unilateral or single leg or single arm exercises. Great way to challenge those systems. Further, we could start throwing in balance training, utilizing unstable surfaces, uh, BOSU balls, balance cushions, anything that challenges those stabilizers to increase activation and help improve the integrity of the movement and of the joints. So give that a shot for your first one today. The second one today, if we're trying to develop optimal length tension relationships is to try to train with a full range of motion so that all the muscles have an opportunity to contribute to the movement. I want you to try something. I want you to pick some exercises and take yourself through that pattern. And try to go through a full range of motion and try to find the position or the technique that will optimize those length tension relationships. And the way we do that is by moving and training at different angles. So some suggestions, maybe try a different barbell grip during your bench press or a different stance during your deadlifts to engage different muscles. Maybe try performing some exercises and stopping at different angles to see how efficient you are with that movement. See if you notice a point during that movement where you feel unstable or very difficult to maintain. If you understand that pattern that you're performing, you can modify how you load it so that you can optimize muscular contribution and development. So you can change it slightly to get more out of it and test where optimal late tension relationships exist and where you may need to spend a little bit more work developing more optimal patterns. So there it is, everyone. I dropped some heavy stuff on you today, but I think if you take the time to digest it and grasp it, it's going to be really beneficial for you. So try keeping some of these things in mind next time you start training. And I think you'd be surprised what just a little change in focus and perspective can do for your development and for your outcomes. Hey guys, as always, I'm really appreciative that you took some time to listen to the episode today and um, I hope you were able to get something out of it and you grab some, some good productive tips that you can implement into your training. Um, continuing with this theme of holistic synergistic movement, I'm going to talk about kinetic chains in the next episode. And specifically what I'm going to talk about are the different types of kinetic chains and how to strategically choose different kinetic chain exercises so that you can drastically improve your training results. Again, Thanks so much, everyone. I really look forward to chatting with you next time. So take care and remember, wherever you are, keep moving. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of More to Movement with your host, Pete Rowletter. 
If you enjoyed the show, please visit moretomovement.com where you can find this episode's show notes along with more episodes and articles to empower you on your journey.